Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Jackman Radio. To those of you who have tuned in before, welcome back. To those of you listening and watching for the first time, I welcome you. Thank you for landing on our video or our audio podcast, wherever you may be in the planet. I'm your host, Eric Jackman, and joining me as always is my twin brother, Mike Jackman, here in beautiful Peterborough, New Hampshire. And tonight, we are very excited to welcome um, a special guest, uh, musician, rock star, drummer, and all-around very interesting guy, Mr. Pete Parada. Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. And um, yeah, you um, you know came on my radar. Um, you know, obviously, I'd, I'd heard of you before, obviously, drumming uh, with The Offspring, because that was a band Mike and I grew up with and got in trouble listening to with our mom. We had uh, we had <laughs> Smash on cassette that we bought out of Strawberries. Hard uh, to skip that song on cassette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we had, uh, you know, we were listening to it in the car because our dad bought it for us. And uh, Was it self-esteem or come out and play? Or? Oh, probably Bad Habit has the, the spot in the middle where it's just a string of curse words and no music. And that's, that's yep. the one that people are always like, yeah, I was, I was good until that song came on. Then my mom took my record. Away. Dude, mom, mom perked right up in the uh, Arrow Star on Route 9 in Framingham. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she ripped that thing right out in that done we were done done so yeah. um but um yeah you know <laughs> obviously we grew up on them and then you know to hear that you were a drummer for in you were in the band from uh 07 to 2021 yep yeah 14 and, years um, stretch wow wow that's epic man and um you know obviously when when covid hit and everything and, and what happened with your departure from the band you know i i heard about you and then um Flash forward a few years uh, to uh, 2023 when you started the mega group, The Defiant. Uh, you joined that as their drummer. So a lot of great things to talk about tonight. So I guess just to get us started, Pete, um, what got you going into music? What was like the singular event or influence in your life that really put you down the path towards becoming a professional musician? I'd have to say it was my family. My dad was a, a music teacher. He was like a middle school, high school band director. And uh, so there was always music in the house. And I have two older brothers um, who were very influential on me. I just kind of looked up to them as like, you know, wanted to be just like them. And they were really in, at the time I was probably three or four years old, they had discovered Kiss. So the, the three of us pooled our resources. I think it was like $6 at the time and bought Kiss Alive 2 on vinyl. And uh, we, would wore, we wore that record out, but we would just not just listen to it. We were standing up on the dining room chairs like we were on their hydraulic lifts on stage and you know putting on Kiss concerts, the three of us. And uh, that, that really kind of got, got me started. Like I was obsessed with music. I was obsessed with rock music, especially for you know a little four-year-old was probably kind of bizarre at the time, but it just kind of grabbed me. And so I, I had been, you know, banging on pots and pans as every drummer's story of getting started. But uh, my brothers, uh, my oldest brother played clarinet and my middle brother plays the saxophone. And um, I knew my dad being a music teacher that once I got into like third grade, you're going to have to pick your instrument. And I watched them play and I didn't want to learn all the fingerings. I thought that looked too hard and I wasn't interested. So I was said, I know I'll just play the drums and I don't, I can skip all that. And, you know, along the way, just sort of fell in love with it. You know, wasn't 
wasn't planning on it, but uh, at the end of sixth grade, my dad got me my first drum set. And, you know, it, it kind of collected dust. Like I'd, I'd sit and play for a little bit, but it, it, I wasn't drawn to it until a few years later. Um, you know, a kid moved to town who, uh, who could play guitar. And, you know, by that, I mean, he could play the, the beginning of Sweet Child of Mine, which, you know, nobody else in, in my little tiny town could do. So it was like, whoa, this guy can play. And I was the one kid in town with a drum set. So these three guys just showed up at my house one day, like, hey, we're, or told me a few days before in school, like, hey, you have a drum set, right? Yeah. And they're like, all right, we're going to come over. We're going to start a band. And they showed up. And that was kind of it. Like we just started playing music in my basement, moved to my friend's basement, you know, moved anywhere that we could make noise. And, um, and I still wasn't good, um, but I was having fun, but I wasn't serious about it. And then I, a friend of mine dragged me out to a, to the, I'm from a very small town, about a thousand people. My dad taught 10 minutes away at a bigger town of about 10,000 people. And there was a band from that school that was playing and, uh, I got dragged to go see them and my mind was blown because there's this kid that was a year older than me playing exactly like everyone that I saw on MTV at the time, like, you know, twirling his sticks, doing all the fills like he played. And I had always just had this mental thing. I don't know if it was a small town thing or what, but of like, oh, I look up to all these musicians, but I could never do that. You know, I, I couldn't. And then when I saw this guy do it, then like a light just kind of went on in my head. And I was like, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. And I came home the next day and and just kind of threw myself into it. And, uh, you know, asked my dad, I'm like, hey, do you do you have a guy named, named Mick Palmasano in your band? He's like, oh, yeah, he's a really good drummer. I'm like, why the hell have you never told me about him? And my dad, to his credit, was like, I, you've never been very serious. Mick's very serious, you know, so I didn't you know, I didn't think he would be interested. And I was like, well, I'm interested. And then from that point on, that's all I wanted to do. I was going to play drums. I was going to, you know, be in a band. I was going to get better. And I was going to do all the things that I hadn't been doing because I had, for some reason, just thought I couldn't. And uh, so, you know, after high school, moved with with that same drummer, Mick, we moved to California together, went to music school. And from there, just kind of, you know, you get out of school, you start working. I was roommates. Um, one of my teachers at music school was Ray Luzier, who plays for Corn now. But he had always, uh, he's also done David Lee Roth and worked with the Stone Temple Pilots brothers. And like, he just plays with everybody. But at the time, you know, he was a couple years older than me, had just graduated and he's teaching at the school. So we got to be good friends. And when I graduated, I moved in with him. We shared an apartment for a few years. And, um, and he would kick me down gigs that he was too busy for or whatever that really got me started out in LA. And now he lives here in Nashville, like 10 minutes from me, which is hilarious. Wow, so it's like full circle. Yeah. Full circle. 30 years later, we're still back together. So. Wow. So it sounds like your family was very supportive of the endeavor when you indicated to your dad, Hey dad, I'm serious about this. Yeah. My dad was a, was a real serious person too. So me going off to um, he was a rule follower and, uh, he, he liked things to be a specific way. Like, well, this is what you do. And, and I was kind of coming up like, I don't think I want to go to college. I want to go to music school. And I didn't know how it was going to go with my parents, but he was, he was super cool. He was like, you know, if that's what you want to do, as long as you understand how hard it's going to be and that you're going to have to work, you know, crappy jobs and, and a crazy schedule to, to make something like that happen. But if, if you're willing to take it seriously and work hard, then we'll, we'll back you up on it. And, you know, to his credit, he did. And he was, you know, super, super proud of what I was able to do. 
um, while he passed away 20 years ago. But by then I had done like face to face and saves the day. And, and uh, so it was really cool of him to at least get, get to see me get started and, and that I was making a living and, and making it happen. Right. You were on the path. It's yeah. huge having your parents support. Um, kind of a similar story. Our, our dad bought Eric a drum set for Christmas when we were in middle school. And it kind of sat around getting dusty. And then I was just like, hey, I want to be a drummer. And uh, I started playing and Eric switched over to guitar. And I've, yeah. been, a drum, I've been a drummer as well ever since, Pete. So I, I that's, like the Van Halen brothers. You just you just switched. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, oh, I love being a drummer. It's uh you know, the, the, the other guys in the band will say, you got to be half crazy. You got to be a little to want to be a drummer. There's got to be something, something you're wired a little differently. And I, I think that's probably the case. I agree. There's got to be a little something wrong with you in the head to want to do something like, because you're, you know, it's very physical. And, and you know, I, I always steal Tommy Lee's old line of like, oh, I hit things for a living. You know, I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but it, it's, it really is a mentality. But then you hang out with a bunch of drummers and they're, you know, by and large, some of the sweetest, most laid back people you'll see, like the super hyper crazy on stage. But I think we get it all out there. And then we're really mellow just to sit back and hang out with. Yeah, definitely. So it's like a form of therapy doing like a three hour show. For um, sure. You know, it can it can obviously, as you know, it can be a grind, but it's uh, it's, it's like the workout for the week is what I tell people. Yep. You know, it's, it's the workout. Now, yeah. um, who were who some of your big uh, influences? Uh, like who were some of your favorite drummers? Um, I mean, starting out, obviously, Peter Chris from Kiss, um, you know, I started learning those songs and, you know, very timidly. But um, I was always really into like Tommy Lee. I liked the, his flashiness and I just I liked his how energetic he was. Um, and, you know, my my favorite drummer probably growing up was from Queensryche, uh, Scott Rockenfield. I thought he was the most creative of the metal drummers, you know, very like he was always doing something atypical you know that band was always kind of pushing the envelope and so i really was really into him i still go back and listen to those records because i i still get inspired by the way that he approached the drums and um but my my biggest influence was my friend mick that got me started you know like to this day still my favorite drummer still still the uh biggest influence i've ever had because it just the way he played and the way not just the way he played but who he was when we moved to california like we didn't know each other very well and uh and he had he had kind of been out there already he's a year older than me so he had started school did six months came home for the summer and then we went back together and uh he totally took pity on me took me under his wing like we got there and i like i'm a month out of high school complete idiot from a tiny town now i'm in hollywood living behind the chinese theater terrified to leave our apartment and we went to the grocery store and you know i was just like i didn't know what to do so he put something in his cart i put that same thing in my cart and he was finally like okay you're where i was a year ago here let me help you and just you know was always sweet patient took took so much time with me and uh you know not just in life but in drumming like made sure like hey don't get caught up i know these new jazz classes are exciting neither one of us is jazz drummers like don't forget what you're good at don't forget to develop your rock side because that's that's what you're that's what you're going to do like neither one of us is playing at the baked potato on a saturday night it's just not going to happen but this isn't this is whiplash yeah yeah exactly and it, so it was really very for me it was the the biggest thing to have someone that 
understanding and and practical and who wasn't afraid to have hard conversations about things like that and then from from there going from mick and then living with ray and and i love ray's drumming like i don't know if you guys are familiar about him he just plays with such conviction he's so strong and powerful and creative and always doing something outside the box so you know those two guys really just kind of you know, lifted me up and gave me an education on on the world and and drumming and stuff. Which is, you know, is is Ray currently with Corn? Yep. yep. Okay, so we saw him. We saw Corn uh, and Aaron Lewis play up here in New Hampshire. Um, when was that, Mike? Two, three years ago? Twenty twenty or twenty twenty one? Yeah, that was a hell of a show. And Corn, <laughs> dude, they blew the roof off that place. Yeah, there. I mean, I'd seen Corn growing up in L.A. or growing up, you know, playing in bands. Once I got out of school, they were kind of coming up, and and I had a metal band that had done a show with them here, or there, or something. And uh, you know, the, they were a interesting, fun, good band. But when they got Ray, like he made them a band. Like their their show is is so sick now because he's just holding it down, and 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 lifting each of them up individually. Like he's he really he makes that band for me. Are you familiar with a somewhat newer drummer, uh, Grayson Nekrutman? I keep hearing about it. Is he the one that's doing uh, suicidal tendencies? Yeah, so I think he just finished a tour with them, or I don't know if he's still with them, but he just joined Sepultura, I guess. Yeah. He's, he's, he's joining Sepultura for their farewell tour. Um, I'm, I'm very impressed. I mean, that guy, hes I think he's 21 or something. Right. It's unbelievable. That's cool. Yeah, I've heard good things about him. I'm I'm not up on on all the, the new young stuff. But, but. I, I, well, I like you. I mean, my two of my favorite drummers would be Hal Blaine and Stuart Copeland. Yeah, those are good ones. Hal Blaine, um, he came in to the music school I was at and did a clinic while I was there, and was super cool. And I still I have a pair of his sticks because no at way. the end of the end of the clinic, and I mean he's done every session under the sun, like any, any music from the 60s, 70s that we grew up listening to, he played the drums on that stuff. And oh, yeah. uh, so he's telling Beach Boy stories and all this stuff. And at the end, he's auctioning off, um, you know, he, you know, his stick company sent him with stuff and everyone got a raffle ticket. And so thought he was done after the last one. And so I'm walking out the door and he's like, oh, I got the, the, cause he had been playing during the, you know, the clinic and stuff. He goes, oh, wait, I got the sticks I've been using. And he calls out one more ticket and it was mine. So I went, and went awesome. up and yeah, I got to meet him and get his sticks and stuff. So I still have them. They're, they're extra short. It was really interesting. Like he played really short sticks. I love too how when they ask him what kind of equipment he uses or what brand he's like, I don't know. I never really cared to look. I just wanted to make sure it sounded good. And yeah. uh, to me, it's that beat, man. It's that like, yeah. I mean, that's it's iconic, you know? Yeah, it's the space between the notes. And, and that dude just had it, had it effortlessly. He, Great storyteller too. Yeah, that's, that must have been a cool experience, man. I think he made it to his nineties. Yeah, he was he was older when he passed for sure. Yeah, because I mean this would have been 91, 92 when I when I met him, and he was, you know, he was getting getting up there then. So, so when was it, Pete, um, in your career? And obviously, you made the move over to the West Coast when you said to yourself, like, "This is my break. I've made it. I'm going to be earning a living as a professional musician." What was those? What were those circumstances in your mind? Um, I don't know. I think people have have different uh, visions or or benchmarks of success and stuff. But I, I think when I joined a punk rock band in LA called Face to Face, 
um, that was when I was able to the for, for the first time I'm just making money from playing music, making records and touring. Because I had been working at a rehearsal studio um, for about six years after I graduated uh, music school. Um, so I started working at this place, which run by um, Mark Zonder, who is a drummer for Fate's Warning, and they're a New England band, right? You guys familiar with the metal band? I don't think so. I want to say that. Oh, they might be Connecticut. Um, but yeah, so he owned this place. And so I went up there to, you know, a buddy of mine was like, hey, go talk to Mark because you need somewhere to play your drums and store your drums. If you go clean the studio once a week, he'll let you, you know, set up and play. So that's what I did. I was bussing tables in, in West LA where I lived with Ray. And then I would go, you know, a couple days a week out there, empty the trash, vacuum everything up. And, and then I could set up and play my drums for a few hours and put them back away. And you had a good relationship with him. And just from being in that place, I just started meeting other other bands and other artists. And, you know, you start networking with people. And so Face to Face was um, coming off a tour and they were rehearsing at the at the studio. And so they came in and they had just fired their drummer and they borrowed another drummer, went out and did a tour. And a friend of mine was ended up tour managing them. And he calls me up about two days into the tour and he's like, what what's wrong with you? Why aren't you why aren't you out here? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, they're they're auditioning people, you know, right there under your nose and you didn't go out for it. And I was like, I don't know anything about punk rock. I'm a metal guy. And he's like, yeah, they, they don't want a punk rock drummer. They're going to make a weird rock record, you know, so they're coming. This guy's not going to work out. They're coming back in where you work and they're going to audition more people. So I was like the last person that went in for an audition with them. And I think they must have auditioned like 60 people. Like they were really, they were looking for something specific because they needed someone who could play like a really solid, heavy rock style, but could also pull off the fast punk rock stuff. And so I sat there listening to all these people come through and be like, oh, that guy's really got the rock thing down. Oh, he, he doesn't have the speed. Oh, that guy's got the speed down. Oh, he can't do the rock thing. And so I had just gone into their rehearsal room, stole one of their live albums out of their merch box and learned the whole thing. So by nice. the time by the time it, they got down to me, uh, it was probably three or four days they were going through people and everybody played the same two songs, one slow song, one fast song. And so then I start coming in and they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, the, the kid that scrubs the toilets and parks the car is here. We like we can't find anybody. And, and this is where we're at. Fine. And so I was just kind of like, hey, you guys tired of those two songs? You want to play something else? And they're like, yes. What, what do you know? I'm like, I know your whole live record. And so they just started tearing into these songs and we had the best time. It was like they got to get out of their funk of I'm so tired of these two songs. And, you know, we got to kind of have a back and forth. And, and for me, not having played punk rock before it, it kind of their music clicked for me because it just sounded like it had the energy of heavy metal. But, you know, you just did the fast stuff with one foot instead of two. And so I was like, oh, OK, I, I understand this. I, I can play this. And so it was a really good fit. And um, and we did go on to make a really weird like rock record that nowadays, you know, bands would have called a side project or whatever. But they were just they had been burning themselves out for years, just touring nonstop and, and playing this punk rock stuff. And they wanted to stretch out and do something different. So, you know, after that, then we went back to making punk rock records. But it was it was a, a good first experience for me to get in a real recording studio and you know it's like we're making our record across the hall guns and roses was working on that record that took him 15 years you know so it was it was a neat experience of getting my foot in the door of that world with some guys who again 
were super cool like like hey let's we're going to show you how to tour we're going to show you how to travel and how to pace yourself on stage and all, mm. all these things that you need to learn when you're coming up like i've always been really fortunate to have come across people that are like hey let me help you out here let, let me teach you something you and i was willing to learn and willing to take it in so that that for me i guess that was a really long-winded answer to your oh, question but uh it was face to face like when when we finally started going on tour that's when i could quit my job at the rehearsal studio and you know it's kind of never looked back yeah and how long was your first big tour with them and was it just in the states yeah we did i mean that band we we did long tours and we they didn't like days off so we would go out for about 10 weeks in the states like we would hit the whole country and we at one point we did a tour where, which started with 34 shows in a row with no days off and, and that and that was just the the first half um so it was very intense um but you know they kept it fun like nothing was ever too serious everybody had a good time you're joking around you're you're traveling in and it it you are spending so much time with people that you're on the road with that you have to you have to like them you know you have to get along or it's it's honestly at, at some point like the paycheck or whatever would not be worth it like you you got to get along with the people that you're out with and want and want to be there for especially back then when we were doing 10 week tours and stuff like that was that was crazy right cuz you know they're your bandmates and your friends with you know they're also your coworkers yeah. which is kind of i guess you could put it that way but mm -hmm. it's like that with a, a lot of jobs you know you want to like your coworkers and get along with them but man if you imagine being with your coworkers on a bus yeah traveling yeah, like, the whole country and you're sleeping on that bus and yeah regular job you get to go home at night and not see everybody but on the bus you're that's that's your thing I, it was uh you know at, again another learning curve of how how to exist in a small space with people how to make sure that you're keeping your stuff clean how, not making a mess not getting in everybody's way you know it's a it, it's all a learning curve and though they were the greatest people that i could have learned all of that stuff with i'm always grateful to them for that so along the way doing that tour and then subsequently you know doing other tours uh maybe inter international ones when was when did things kind of like settle in for you were like okay i'm 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 uh, I'm I'm more used to this. Whereas, like the first time you went out and did that, you have the crowd and you're on stage and adrenaline's running, and then you're going city to city and, and it's like a totally new foreign experience. And then eventually in your career, it just kind of became something that was like commonplace and that you were used to. You know, you know what I mean? I think during my run with Face to Face, it was six years that I was with them. Um, I I ran the gamut from. I mean, the first show I did with them was a complete disaster. We were playing very small venues, um, just doing a, like a two week promo run, playing tiny places uh, to get the word out about the new record. And so the first show was in Phoenix, Arizona in the height of summer, you know, it's like 110 degrees, 120 there. And we were playing this tiny club that held about 200 people. They crammed 300 people in it and just like closed the doors and there was no air, nothing running. You had to fight through the crowd just to get up on the stage. So it was so sweltering that, and I, my first big show right and we were playing a long set we were doing like 25 songs and i just came out of the gate like with something to prove and by the third song i was like i've made a terrible mistake here i'm, I'm just i'm dying like my muscles are screaming i'm i'm drenched in sweat i can't see i can't breathe and i was like holy shit so i had to kind of slow down and and during the show kind of learn how to pace it but by the end of the show we had like two or three songs left and i was nauseous and i was just going to pass out and thankfully, one of our newer songs 
had this big buildup moment for like the first minute of the song. So I'm just building up here and then I'm leaning over and vomiting all over <laughs> the floor next to me. But as, as soon as I got that out, then I was like, you know, you kind of re-energize and I was like, all right, cool. I can get through these last few songs. But, you know, later that night I was like laying on the bus and I was like, I can't, I don't think I can do this. Like I'm not cut out for this. And they were like, you're fine. Like give it, you know, we got a day off tomorrow. And then, you know, the day after that, we were in Austin, had a great show. And I was like, you, you kind of beat your muscles in the shape, but you got to have that catastrophic experience. The same when we went, uh, the first time I left the country, we went to Japan with face to face on that tour and I'd never experienced jet lag before. And I, so I never got on schedule over there. I, I didn't know how to handle mm -hmm. it. I was completely messed up to the point where I smashed my finger on the snare drum between the stick knocked this nail right off my hand and it was just oh. like swollen and bleeding the whole trip and then of course you're still jet lagged so then you hit it again and it's just like <laughs> crazy crazy stump of blood um but it, you know through that experience it's like okay next time i gotta i gotta pace out you know i'm gonna sleep on the plane but i'm gonna get up at this i gotta try to put my body on this schedule to the point where now last year i went to europe um and uh did did my usual setup. I landed there, never had jet lag, not one bit of it. I landed on schedule. We did a month over there and it was it was great. Um, so you learn you learn how to kind of adjust to those things um, as as you go. But all of those experiences are all of those firsts are like, oh, OK, what what am I doing? And you just kind of look to see what everybody else is doing and, and try to figure it out. Yeah, and along with the touring aspect of it, um, did you maybe get a gut punch on the business aspect of the music industry that was like, maybe there were some things happening. You were just like, holy shit, I didn't realize it was like this. Or did you get any kind of a warning or anyone, a mentor along the way to help you with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, tons of people have, have <clears throat> helped with that. I mean, everyone you work with, you learn a little something from, even if it's, you know, something innocuous, like, like, Oh, okay. Look, these two guys don't get along, but, they still they can still work together. They can they can cohabitate. They can they can make this work, even though you visibly can tell they don't like being in the same room together. It's still worth it for them to to make this happen. So, you know, I've been in situations like that and you kind of learn how to navigate personalities, I think, is the, right. the biggest part of the business. Like the business is always going to come at you with something shitty like it's always going to try to you know, somebody's always trying to pull something on someone, even if it's not within your own band, it, it'll be a promoter, it'll be a, a manager, it'll be some someone along the way is, has got an agenda. And so I, I think I've learned to smell out an agenda better than than I did, you know, 25 years ago. Um, so maybe maybe that's helpful. But there's so, so much that goes on in this industry. If, if anything, I've learned is that every band goes through the same thing like eh, eh, no matter what your intentions are when you get there the same struggles the same the same power dynamics present themselves no matter what and so you just kind of have to be able to to navigate that and and speak your mind and kind of hold your ground a little bit on things like you know i i don't need to be right all the time on anything you know but i i expect to be listened to i expect to be uh, respected and I, I think that's when everybody can come come from it from a place of respect and that's when things can can move forward and and that that's when you have a good situation yeah and it's it's probably like other enter entertainment industries it's 
a big industry, but it's not so big where people, if they're pulling shit, they have a reputation. It precedes them. Yeah, it doesn't it gets, take long. It gets around. It doesn't take long. Yeah, people work with different crews and different production companies and venues, and you can compare and contrast notes with other bands and Especially other people. Now. Yeah. Even pre-internet, you know, it was, you could, you would hear the stories of like, oh, don't deal with that guy. Don't, don't deal with that promoter. You're not going to get paid. Like, you know, especially playing in LA, trying to get a band started for years, you know, probably dozens of, of times out there. And at that time you had to, you know, they called it pay to play, but it wasn't, you were, you bought a set of tickets to the show that you were on and you were able to sell those for whatever you could get for them. So you could make money if you were able, and it's like, who can convince a bunch of people to pay money to come see a local band? You're just trying to get people in there. So you're, you're paying a couple hundred bucks to be on the show and giving the tickets away, just trying to get people there to get something started. But that's, that's LA. That's how the promoters were. And that's, you know, that's how it was. There was this super, super bringer. <laughs> yeah. There was a club, one of the first clubs I played and it's been gone forever, but it was a very famous club in sunset called uh, the coconut teaser. And they had the world's worst house drum set that anyone has ever had to deal with like i mean this thing was beat to hell in the early 90s like it barely it was all gigantic drums the heads hadn't been changed in a decade like it was impossible to play it was the worst but you weren't allowed to bring your own gear in there because they were like nope no we, we keep the shows moving and and blah 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 and the and the owner of the club always liked to say it was good enough for guns and roses it's good enough for you and it was just, you know, impossible to play. But that's the kind of what you were up against in that town. There's so many people there trying to do the same thing. And, and you're all trying to get, you know, a good spot on a Monday night at some club and see if, if you could get 30 people to come out. You know, it was a miracle. It seems like there has been kind of a shift. Like you, you mentioned, you've been in Nashville for 13 years or so. Um, it's almost like with comedy, Austin is now the comedy epicenter of America. I feel like Nashville for the music industry is kind of becoming that hub. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we got here 13 years ago, it was super quiet, super dead, like country town. Absolutely. Music town for sure. Like the songwriter is king here, which is it's so much more interesting than, you know, uh, New York or L.A., where everything is very me and mine and selfish. And and I was talking with a friend of mine who just moved here from New York City and he had noticed, like, since I got here, I, I'm collaborating with all these people. I have more work than I know what to do with. And it's, a, it's such an exciting time. Why do you think that is? And I was like, well, because here everyone wants to collaborate. Everyone wants to work together where in other big cities, you're, everyone's kind of out for themselves. So Nashville, since we got here, has changed because so many people are getting out of California, getting out of New York, getting out of these high tax states and you know states that are just grinding your rights down to powder. And they want to be somewhere that's more laid back and you can get a little bit of space here and you can, you know, you can breathe and it's not, you're not getting, you know, your neck stepped on with all these, you know, laws and rules and taxes and things. So it's what it's done is, is kind of re reinvigorate the town as something more than just a country town. Like I don't, I don't think of Nashville and think of country anymore. Like it's, there's every kind of music going on here. There's every kind of art going on here. There's a, you know, there's theater scene that's bubbling up, comedy scene that's bubbling up. Like everything is kind of coming to these towns, whether it be Nashville or Austin or, um, you know, a lot of people went to Denver. Like there's, there's all these places that are, are coming up because people wanted to get out 
of the the places where all this was happening before. And so I don't I don't think there's as much excitement coming out of LA and New York anymore because I don't know how you collaborate there if you're living in an environment as an artist where you have to self-censor to fit in, to self-censor to not get canceled. How what's the point of even creating if you're putting yourself in a box before you even get started of like, well, I can't talk about that and I don't want to upset this. You know, you you can't create from a place of self-censorship like that. So I, I think Nashville has, has been a kind of a, a lighthouse for artists that want to uh, have a little bit more leeway with what they want to have to say and, and to be in a place where you're allowed to say it. That's awesome to hear that, man. Yeah, you can't you can't be in a stifling environment. That's that's just no. It just seems like uh, the authoritarianism of California and New York has pushed people away in all sectors. So if there's one good thing to come from the flu world order, it's the, it's the rebirth of art and creativity and passion and, and uh, being able to say your own thing and what you want to say. So that's really that's encouraging to hear that. Yeah. And I, and I know it's not just happening here. And obviously, Austin is is a, a huge art scene that and I, I love that the comedy thing has taken off there with Rogan's Club and and. You know, people want to go where they're allowed to have a little bit of freedom and, and allowed to speak their mind. And so, you know, places like Nashville and Austin are are very appealing for that. And we still got it here in New Hampshire too, Pete. Let me tell you. That's awesome. See that what what is the the freedom? What's what's live free or die? Right. Live that, free or die. Live free or die. There you go. Yeah, during the uh, the height of COVID, um, the Shell, which is a libertarian performance space on the coast here in New Hampshire. I think was one of the only places uh, anywhere in the Northeast that stayed open, didn't close and invited acts to come through and people came through and performed comedy there. And Mike and I have, have performed comedy there. So shout out to the libertarians and free staters here in New Hampshire, who really that attitude you speak to Pete, where you just speak your mind and you're not afraid mm -hmm. of what other people think. Um, those, those guys are, they're, they're high on that and they have a, have a big reputation up here for that. And they live it. They That's live awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They, we have, yeah. We have pork fest uh, every year. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. What's that about? So pork fest, like I tell people, it's like the libertarian Woodstock. Uh, it happens here in New Hampshire uh, every year for a week during the summer and libertarians and liberty minded people from around the country and from around the world uh, come up to Rogers campground in Lancaster, New Hampshire for a week. And there's a big pavilion there and there's guest speakers and there's all kinds of workshops and basically you could see someone wearing a tie-dye bikini with a joint in their mouth carrying an AR. And it's just uh that that's commonplace at Porkfest. That's awesome. So like, like just an open exchange of ideas in a in a space where people are allowed to speak. Yep, there's music, there's you know, people teach you their trades. Um there's a section where people who want to do like drugs will do drugs. There's a nudist section where people want to be nude. They can be nude. Got the smoking um, section, the drug section, the nudist section. Like, seriously. And um, I was there this past year with RFK Jr. Um, because he spoke there. And boy, that pissed off the New Hampshire Democratic Party because this is when we were, this is when we were still running in the Democratic primary right. uh, back in June of last year. And, uh, you know, it caused a little bit of a, a little bit of a stir because, you know, people need to understand the sensitivity to gun violence around Bobby Kennedy, obviously the way he lost his father and his uncle. May they both rest in peace. Um, so in the pavilion where Bobby spoke, you know, 
people had to check their guns and not bring their guns in with them. And Bobby had private armed security with him. You know, you got to you got to be careful. Um, but I got to say, man, he went in there and he all the speeches I've seen at Porkfest, it was received really well. And yeah, they, I mean, he's, he's such an incredible speaker and he always has a powerful message and knows how to convey it. Yeah, it, it, it was amazing to be part of that and be there with him. And uh, this Dennis Kucinich was still running the campaign at this time. And uh, that was that was just epic to see a Kennedy, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. speaking to a huge pavilion full of libertarians. And uh, it was really it was respectful. And obviously there wasn't agreement on everything. But it was something that Mike and I really thrive on and, and base our podcast and what we do around, which is exchange and we can disagree on stuff and not get at each other's throats. Right. And and when did that become like so taboo? Like, you know, you have to agree with every with someone on every issue or you just can't be in their life anymore. I can't be friends with them. Like it drives me nuts. Like I don't need to agree with anybody on everything, but I want to have a good conversation. I want to learn something. I'm not going to learn something from just agreeing with everybody all the time. Like I want to be challenged. I want to challenge people. I want to, you know, I want to hear a, a good conversation, not a lecture. And, you know, I, I don't want to be bombarded with talking points. So, you know, give me ideas. Give me, you know, let's discuss ideas. I love that because we can't, we can't get anything done if we're not willing to talk to people that we disagree with. And it, it seems like that's been, it's such an issue now, you know, you know, even like Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin and everyone's all mad about it. Like, oh, you're giving this madman a platform and whatever. But it's like, well, there's this huge war that's being funded by us and we're not allowed to hear from one of the major players on it. Like, that seems kind of crazy to me. Like, let, let people talk, let people get their ideas out. Let's have a discussion. Not not just an inquisition, and this is the way it is, and there's nothing else to talk about. Um, that's I don't that doesn't compute for me. Yeah, no, I I, I agree 100. percent I was psyched to see Tucker go over there. And did you see the Oliver Stone interviews from a few years ago? Yes. Yeah. Those are amazing, and yeah. those are very telling. And if anyone who's a student of history and actually watched those with an open mind and actually listened to what Putin was saying. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine is not it's not a huge shocker. Yeah, not, yeah, not mean, a huge surprise. Not not really. I mean, the way that things were laid out all the way back to 2014 and stuff. I mean, you know, we don't need to get into the weeds on it. But if you're if your line in the sand is, you know, we can't have nuclear weapons in this country on our border, that's going to provoke action. And then you start trying to get Ukraine to join the UN, like it's it's going to start problems and. So I, I just think, you know, these are huge issues. These are, are huge problems to solve and we can't solve them by not talking to people and not, not hearing their point of view or at least letting them feel heard because nobody can come to some sort of a compromise if they feel that they're not heard and they're not respected to begin with. So I, I think if we're not talking to people that, again, that we disagree with, we can't really make any progress. And yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And also, I just feel like in the last several years, everything's been boiled down to uh, sound bites. It's yes. just really like really quick, like uh, kind of uh, vapid talking points that you just you can't really glean anything from it. Whereas, uh, you know, a more long form conversation like we're having here, I think I think that's why these type of podcasts have, have uh, grown in popularity. Well, that's where it's at. To. People want to hear 
what you really have to say, not your four minute hit on CNN where you try to cram in as many talking points and get out of there unscathed. It's like when you sit down with somebody for a couple hours, you know, the conversation can go anywhere. You learn about their background, you learn about how they feel about things, but maybe you find common ground, you find disagreement, but you can talk where it's not like, well, we'll have to leave it there because we got to go to another Pfizer commercial. You know, it's, I, I think these long form conversations, but why they are so popular and they're so prevalent now is because people are looking for something more. People are tired of, of sound bites and, and short catchphrase statements that mean nothing. They're tired of platitudes and they want to hear something real. They want to actually hear what, how somebody feels about it. So yeah, it's exciting for me um, anytime, especially if there's someone I'm interested in. It's like, oh, they did that podcast. I can't wait to hear that because I want to sit and listen to them for three hours. Even if it's on a subject I don't know anything about, I want to hear it. Yeah, well, you're, you're going to learn something. And uh, yeah, like back to Oliver Stone, I'm such an Oliver Stone fanboy. He did, he's done Rogan a couple of times. And you just know, like when he goes on there, Rogan's going to ask him about his time in Russia with Putin. He's going to ask him about his experiences in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, because it's just a, a freewheeling conversation that's not built on any pretense. Yeah, and you've yeah. got room to see where it goes. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes it falls flat. Not not every three hour conversation is compelling, but there's always something in there that you can pull out. You know, I, I always have a takeaway um, from from anyone. You know, if they've got a point of view that they're willing to to share and present, then you've got something you can learn from. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And um, I watched a couple of your interviews before we had you on here, Pete. And before we kind of get into the Defiant, um, obviously, you, you spent years with the offspring, like we mentioned. And it, it kind of seems like, you know, you had a different point of view on, on something very major. And uh, ultimately, that that kind of caused you to part ways with the band. Um, yeah, I mean, we you mind elaborating on that a little or if you don't want to, that's fine, too. Now I'll give you I'll give you the short version because I've told the story so many times. But I mean, right. in, by by 2021, you know, when the COVID vaccines were rolled out and people were trying to get back out, you know, the music industry had to unring the bell of terror that had rained down on people of like, don't gather in groups, don't go outside, don't don't talk to your neighbor, you know, don't breathe on anybody. And they're like, how do we get people to want to come back out and give us money again? Um, so you know, Live Nation came up with basically the idea of the fully vaccinated tour where all the bands can say that the bands and their crew are all fully vaccinated. So it's safe to come to the show. And, you know, at first they tried to extend that to the audiences and found out pretty quick that that was, um, uh, there was pushback, you know, a couple big artists did a few vaccine vaccinated, bring your card only shows and really pissed off half the crowd. So they realized, you know, Mandating it on your band and your crew was good for business. Mandating on the audience was bad for business, which mm. so now if we're having people that are on the stage are all allegedly um, all protected and safe and the people in the crowd, it's the Wild West. What's the point of mandating it on these people on stage? And I'm not saying that it should have been mandated on everyone. It should have been mandated on no one. And so I had a very different point of view than my band on that. And long story short, um, you know, I was not allowed to continue to work with them. Um, and it was really depressing the way that it went down. Um, it happened really quickly. Um, you know, I had a, a 
horrible conversation with their manager who made it very clear in no uncertain terms that I was to get vaccinated or I would be replaced. And that was that. Um, other than that, just ghosted by all these people who I'd worked with for 14 years, um, never, never to be heard from again, not just for me, but for my family, like our kids grew up together, our wives were all friends, but overnight we were just gone. And uh, it was, it was really, like I said, it was hard. It was depressing. It was shocking. Like I was really dejected and, you know, but I, I thought that it was important because to say something, because if I was getting leaned on here, everyone in the industry was getting leaned on here. I mean, obviously at that time, trying to make this decision of what are we going to do? I talked to as many people as I could and lots of people felt the same way as I did. A lot of people went and got fake cards, which I didn't want to do because it was just like, if I'm, if I'm pretending here, if I'm lying here now, I don't have a voice in this fight. Now I can't push back and say, this shouldn't be happening to people. We, you know, People should be able to make their own choices here. I wasn't going to hide behind that. And I don't have an issue with anyone who did. Like everyone was in an impossible situation. And however you needed to navigate that for yourself or your family, um, that's, you know, make your choice for yourself. But that that's, was my point, was everyone should be able to make their own decisions here and not be leaned on by their employers or the government um, in any way of, of like, you have to do this or you're, you can't exist in society anymore. So it was a, it was a really rough time for me and my family. We lost tons of, of friends, tons of, tons of people who I'd worked with over the years, really distance from me because it was such a hot potato issue. Now, you know, almost three years later, everybody's kind of looking around going, Oh boy, that got out of hand and crazy. Mm. But, but nobody really wants to apologize of like, oh, hey, I abandoned you and your family at your lowest moment. Uh, I'm so sorry about that. You know, won't happen again. Like I, I'd be open to that sort of thing. But that's pretty few and far between. I think people are embarrassed of how lousy <clears throat> they were to people and they don't they don't want to have to admit that they just want to move on. Isn't it crazy, Pete, that those who were the loudest and most hysterical um, at the zenith of the flu world order are silent now? Yep. Yeah, they got nothing to say now. And crickets. Yeah. So yeah, the people that were dunking on me, you know, because you know, oh, look at this stupid dumbass Neanderthal drummer is in a band with a guy with a PhD in molecular biology, and it's like, okay, but yeah, you know, well, I, I, like, still I, still stand, I stand by my position here. So you know, the, yeah. Well, you know what? You were you were right, Pete, and you did the right thing, and uh, I want to applaud you for that, man. I think that took uh, that took a lot of guts, and and I can't even imagine what it was like for you and your family. And then, like you said, something you were a part of for 14 years um, to have it just end like that, and all these people who were, you know, like you said, like family to you and, yeah. and with you along that ride, and then all of a sudden, the snap of a finger, and it's it's all gone. Um, that's shocking. Well, and it happened to so many people through through the whole industry through every industry and in every walk of life. I mean, you know, when we put out my statement uh, at the time, I I just kind of expected a firing squad. And instead we were met with this swell of support from around the world of all these people sharing their stories with me of like what happened to them or what happened to their family member or the pressure that they're under because the, the mandate's coming down on their job and they've got to make a decision. Like it was everywhere, which was just so shocking because I don't remember in any other time in history, at least not in the brief history that I've been on this earth of where every government on earth got on the same page at the same time. And uh, had the same talking points within hours of each other 
on a daily basis. When it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that spread like wildfire that day and every world leader was parroting the same thing. So if you were paying attention at all, you were kind of like, this is super weird. Like this is not, this has never happened that everyone's got to do this one thing at the same time. And there's no discussion. You can't have questions. You can't, you know, and even for people to say like, oh, well, everyone's got to get it for the people who can't get it. It didn't matter if you couldn't get it. It didn't matter if you had a medical exemption. It was it was just we will make these platitudes about these nameless, faceless people. So we look benevolent. But when it comes down to someone we know personally, we don't mean it. We're full of shit. And so it was a really, really intense time for my family, for me, you know, my wife and, and my two daughters really got me through that. And some all my very close friends that showed up and some people who I wasn't that close with, but just came out and was like, how can I help? What can I do? You know, what do you need? And, you know, I didn't want to play drums anymore. I didn't want to do music. I mean, I didn't know what to do at all. It was like, well, I'm not going to be able to work anymore. This is the only thing I know how to do. And, you know, a buddy of mine was like, hey, I'm going to drive down there. We're going to make a record. You know, I have my own studio here. And he's like, let's get you back on the drums. And, you know, it was that kind of support that lifted me out of my funk and, you know, had to snap out of it of like, all right, well, I can't do that anymore. So now we have to find a new way forward and, you know, start trying different uh, avenues of making music and getting more into the composing side and the songwriting side of things. And, and in that process kind of reignited my love of music that I had lost. I didn't realize how creatively stunted I had been by just being in a project that was serving somebody else's agenda all those years. Like I, I wasn't bringing any of my personality into those songs. It was like, here's your script, play your script, you know? So while it was certainly a financial downgrade um, to not be in that band anymore, creatively, it, it really was you know, the sky's the limit here. Like what, what do I want to do? And, and what am I excited about? And so that, you know, that led to more opportunities of having that freedom of, well, I'm not going to hide here who I am or how I feel about things. And if anybody wants to work with me, they'll, they'll obviously they understand where I'm coming from and, and anybody who's not going to be okay with that, well, they're not going to reach out to me anyway. So it's, it's been very liberating to, just be able to go, okay, well, this is what I want to work on. This is what I'm I'm willing to work on because it's fun for me or it's interesting or I'm going to learn something or I just like it. And that's to me has been the the biggest takeaway from all of all of the misery that was that year. And then you find out, of course, who's really your friends and who really cares about you and stood by your side during that time. And it did, it kind of weeded out a, a lot of people for, uh, for, Tons uh, of those, those who didn't go along with the agenda. Yeah, and like my wife said, you know, you find your people in those moments. It's the, the people that that ran away from us. Yeah, that's depressing and that's sad, and you can see it happening. You know, and you're like, wow, that's disappointing. I didn't expect that from them. We've been tight for a long time. But the people that run towards you, that are like, hey, this is this is shit. This is I'm sorry. You shouldn't be going through this. What do you need? What can I do? How can we help? like strangers on, on the internet, like, Hey, what, how can, how can I support you? How can, how can we do this? Like somebody, somebody's like, you have a lot of cats and sent me a gift certificate to, for cat food, you know, like little things like nice. that, that it's like, all right, yeah. they're, they're, people are, are good. You gotta, you gotta believe that even it actually restores you your faith in humanity. 
It did. It did. And, you know, we've met so many incredible people since then. Like, I mean, my life doesn't look anything like it did in the best way possible. And that's, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. And that brings us to the new band that you're in, um, the Defiant. So talk a little bit about how that band came together and, uh, how it happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, my story was out there in the fall of 21, you know, pushing back against mandates and losing my gig over it and speaking out. And uh, Dickie Barrett from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones uh, went through the, a very similar thing a few months later. Um, you know, he was the announcer on Jimmy Kimmel and, you know, the mandates came down through Disney there and, and he didn't want to get on board with that either. So he, you know, took the same kind of beating that I had publicly. And you know, through that, uh, we had never met each other before. Um, it's weird because, you know, you travel in musical circles, but, you know, I don't think our styles overlapped or it just wasn't the right time. But he had reached out to me in the spring of 22 and was like, hey, I saw your story. And I was like, yeah, I saw yours. And he's like, you know, let's let's see about maybe doing something together. And and he's like, do you know who Greg Camp is? And I was like, oh, I know his songwriting. Greg wrote all the all the smash hits from Smash Mouth, right? Like that guy rolls out of bed and hit songs fall out of his pocket. Like he's just an absolute musical genius. Um, and he's like, well, Greg's in Nashville. And, you know, I think the three of us could do something together. And I was like, all right, let's see where this goes. You know, because certainly at the time it was like, let's try. Let's try anything that, that comes along. And uh, so we started working on music and pretty quick. He said, hey, I want to bring in Johnny Rio from Street Dogs. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, Street Dogs had toured with Offspring before. And I was like, he's a great bass player. That's awesome. And then they're writing, you know, we start putting songs together and Dickie was writing with Joey LaRocca from the Briggs. And he's like, Hey, I think maybe Joey, the fifth guy, like let's, let's, and that made sense to everybody. Like, all right, let's solidify the lineup. And so we spent that whole summer just sending files back and forth. Cause we're five people and living in four different States. And, um, you just start sending stuff back and forth. And so I have my drum studio here. So I was able to track drums for the record, pass stuff around and everyone added their parts. And, you know, eventually everybody came to town uh, to cut vocals and put the finishing touches on before we sent it off to be mixed. But it was a really exciting time for me to, um, you know, my creativity was reignited. I was excited about playing music and it had been so long since I'd been part of a band from the ground up, you know, when you're a drummer, a lot of your career tends to be getting hired for situations that are already up and running, but maybe something's not working out with the drummer or, or whatever you end up replacing somebody. So it's kind of rare to be, be there from the start with something. And so we made this really amazing record called if we're really being honest, it came out back around Halloween and it's uh, I'm super proud of it. Like the, the songs are incredible and the message is incredible. I, I like being a part of a band that's got something to say and, uh, and so we're heading out on our first tour uh, in April with uh, me first in the Gimme Gimmies, who are just a riot. So much fun to be with. So it's it'll be a fun it'll be a fun time. Yeah, that that's so awesome. And we were lucky to hang out with uh, Johnny and Dickie here. I think that was in August, September, um, August, yeah, September, August. Um, and they were up here for a Rock for RFK event that Dickie put on here in New Hampshire, which was great. Really well attended event. And uh, we got to hang out with him and, and chat with him. So the, vi the vibes are definitely there, Pete. You know, it's 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 freedom. It's speaking your mind. Um, it's it's a reminder of how things once were and how great they could be again. If yeah. We just go if we just go for it. 
Yeah, and and I I think overall the message of I think for all creatives right now is that we 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 have more in common than we than we think we do. And and if you can start from a place of trying to find common ground with somebody instead of jumping in or jumping off from a point of where you disagree, there's so much right. more to be learned and and gained um, from that approach. And I think that's kind of what the band is about. It's about bringing people together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to our audience uh, listening who are in New England, which obviously is where Mike and I are, um, the Defiant will be playing on April 23rd, Tuesday, April 23rd at 8 p.m. in Portland, Maine at the State Theater, Me First and the Gimme Gimme's. And then the next day, Wednesday the 24th, they'll be playing in Boston at Big Night Live um, at 7 o'clock, and that's Wednesday, April 24th. So um, I'm definitely putting uh, both dates on my calendar because I want to try and make it out to one of your shows. We told Dickie when we saw him that when you guys hit the road, we want to try and get to a show because – um, we obviously we want to support it and we want to be there and, and get get the, you know feel the vibe with the audience because obviously a lot of people there are are there for the same reasons to support that kind of energy. Yeah, that would be great to meet you guys in person. That'd be yeah. awesome. And the music's great too. The 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 yeah, the language is a banger, man. Awesome yeah, songs. I know that that was the first song that that came out when or got thrown into the ring when we started putting this together and and I heard that and was like, oh my god. Like that, that song, it was already fully, fully formed idea popped right out of Greg's head. And it was so, so catchy. And yeah, like it's, it's exciting. Like the record is really, really incredible. It covers a lot of styles and, you know, the fact that we kind of just made it as our own little gang together, you know, on right. our own, really, it's, it's a special album. You guys are like a bass traveling Wilburys. Yeah, that's yeah. What a lot of people are like, oh, you guys like traveling Wilburys. I'm like, yeah. yeah. For, for, a, for a based anti-New World Order taste. Oh, how about know, that? Audience. It's, it's traveling Wilburys minus the globalism, folks. Yes. <laughs> Other than that, exactly and, uh, the same. Yeah, another, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I, I'm sorry. The, the name of the song escapes you, but the one um, that's animated. There's like, an, you guys are all like animated. Oh yeah, where uh, Lady Liberty go? Yeah, that that's a beautiful song, man. Dicky sent that to me, man. The first time I saw that, it was it was it really hit me. Yep, yeah, that's I a love, really that's, powerful song. It's one of my favorites. I I love how it, you know, it, it it tells a story of what everybody went through, and you know, it's got it's got a message, and that's that's kind of the point. I feel like so much music anymore, people are number one afraid to say anything, but you know, also just content to just put something out and be bland and inoffensive and, and make some money. Mm. And, you know, I aspire right. to, to more than that. Yeah. And another song with a message that you were a part of, which is another banger is um, I, I saw it for the first time. I think it was around the, what was the recent award show? Was it the, the uh, golden globe? It wasn't the Oscars. Might have actually, yeah. The Grammys happened recently, right? The Grammys yeah. just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ain't no rock and roll by five time. Five times August. Yeah, now you drummed on that beat, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about that experience. How did that come to be, and what was that like? It was cool. Brad uh, reached out to me. We had become friends, like on Twitter, and um, he was like, "Hey, I've got a this new song. You know, would you be interested in in playing drums on it? Because we're both, you know, medical freedom guys and free speech people." And uh, he sent me the song, and it was it was interesting because it's not it's not my wheelhouse, you know, that, that kind of laid back, um, Steve Ferroni kind of, um, 
old school rock vibe. Like I, I really had to sit with it because I, I pushed the beat so, so far ahead usually. So it was really a fun challenge, but I loved the words. I loved what he was saying. And it was really neat to just kind of sit back and just play for the song and, and, you know, had fun in my studio trying to get that sound, like that snare drum sound, like that old school vibe on it. It was really, really a fun, fun thing to, to try out with him. Yeah, it sounds like he, the the names here I'll read off. He had some really uh, epic people involved in this. Ira Dean on bass, who's Aaron Lewis's producer. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, probably going to mess his name up, Tom Bukovac on guitars. And he played with Tom Petty and Joe Walsh. Yeah. And then uh, Jim Moose Brown, who was in the Bob Seger band. Yeah. Um, so that, that's that's quite a mix of musicians and, and you know, piped in people in the music world. It was cool. Yeah. And he put it out with uh, this company called Bass Records here in Nashville. And those guys are great. Like they're they're trying to create a space for artists outside of the mainstream where you you know, if you've got something to say, you don't have to be afraid to say it. And uh, I, I love this new platform and people trying to build it of like, no, there's a space we get to exist here. We don't need permission to create. We don't need someone's permission to say something. And I admire anybody that's willing to stick their neck out and and create a space for artists where they can, you know, stretch out a little bit and not be scared to, you know, have something to say. And and the guys over at Based have been really great about that. I mean, that's the real punk rock spirit, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's that's how it used to be. And now everybody's a little afraid. I mean, it, punk rock right now is a is a conundrum. You know, after, yeah, after it's kind of cuts away. Yeah, I'm just curious to go see some of these bands play and be like, "Are you still going to sing that song about anti-authoritarianism, or you know, or with a with a straight face, or are you going to just skip that one now?" Like, I don't know. I'm fascinated. Yeah, I know. Like Neil Young, you know. Yeah. So that was. I mean, that was just a a big. It could be a boomer cringe moment, or it could be he's just maybe he's always been a bit of an op. I don't know. Yeah, I think he quite didn't quite understand what was going on and, and got got out a little ahead of his skis on that one. But, you know, it's you never want to see anybody that was had had been an advocate for free speech to be advocating to take it away. And um, that, yeah. that was it was hard to watch. And it, that was one of the toughest things of the last few years is watching people that I respected or grew up looking up to and 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 having them say some of the most awful awful things like i mean there wasn't a bigger kiss fan than me growing up and to hear gene simmons say <clears throat> that people won't get that won't get vaccinated should you know basically just go crawl in a hole and die uh was Ooh. just like wow all right dude you know i'm not gonna go run run around and burn my records but it, it certainly takes a little of the fun out of it you know oh yeah definitely I, I think uh certainly financial incentives for people like that were huge but also i just think the fear fear yeah. is so powerful Fear was really powerful. And, you know, it's it's age old of you can control people with fear. You can control a population. You can control the whole world with fear. I mean, we saw how easy it was. It really did not take much to get everyone to agree to lock in their homes and, and wear a mask and don't go outside and, you know, close down your business. Generational family businesses closed forever. You know, for what? You know, kick these people out of your lives. Kick these people out of your band over this thing that now you can look back and go, Oh yeah, I guess it was it was the flu. All right, cool. But you know, so yeah, anytime you know there's a wave of fear being pushed on anyone, I hope we all learned something in the last few years that the next time that tactic gets used, stop and think for a minute before hopping on board with it. 
you know, give, give yourself more credit than that and, and try to figure out what's actually going on. Yeah. Use your own discernment and your, your gut instincts and, and uh, look at different opinions. Absolutely. It seems, it seems basic, but how about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome people. Hey, we're coming up past the hour. So uh, before we run here, if you want to just tell people where to find you and how they can support you and see what you're up to. Yeah. Um, I mean, for anyone who wants any uh, producing help or songwriting help or needs drum tracking, composing, anything like that, you can go to PeteParada.com. You can contact me through there. You can hear some of the work I've done with different artists and uh, send me a message if you're interested. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, just at Pete Parada. I'm not on Facebook, um, so uh, I don't have anything over there. Um, and then the uh, Defiant will be on the road in April and May, all, all along the East Coast with me first in the Gimme Gimme. So come out and say hi. Yeah, that's awesome. And we hope to get out to a show and cover that and meet the band and say hi to the guys and get some cool stuff from it. And then I can whip up a whole sub stack and review your show. And uh, as Trump would say, it's going to be a very glowing review. It's going to be a great review, <laughs> Pete. Believe me, it'll be, it'll be, I'll be so nice. Okay, I could be so nice. It's not okay, bad. I can be I can be sweet as pie, and then sometimes like, what can you be, Mike? I I can be I can be boring. I can be sweet as pie, or I can be harsh as an axe, or what was it? Was a I forget. Yes, yeah, sweet as pie is what he said. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hang out with us, uh, Pete, for a couple minutes after I end the live stream. But uh, to everybody uh, who's listening tonight and tuned in for the first time, um, I really appreciate you joining us. And that's what this podcast is all about. We're all about freedom of expression and freedom of speech and ideas. Um, so please hit that subscribe button. Give us a like. Um, and I put Pete's links all in the description. So go down there and check out all of his stuff. Um, he's out there doing it. It's a tough industry to be in. And it's even tougher when you're based and you speak the truth about things. So, uh, Pete, we really appreciate you taking the time Thank with us good. tonight, man. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, again, thanks for tuning in. And if you want to support this podcast, uh, the best way is obviously to subscribe and share it. Um, but you can become a patron for five or ten dollars a month. Patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. And we're on Substack, uh, ericjackman.substack.com. And we got a lot of great more interviews coming up. So thanks again to Pete. And we will see everybody next time.